0: out the back right there, be with them. You know, it's, uh, I, I want to say it's unique in the church world to have folks standing here being acknowledged and appreciated for years and years and years of serving, have a man stand and say for 28 years, he's been serving in a children's ministry capacity. But I don't, I, you know, I don't know what the common way of doing church Is that's out there today, but unfortunately, longevity of relationships is not a feature in most churches. I don't know what the average stat is, but people tend to to move from place to place pretty quickly. Uh, Can I, I just appreciate the fact that God calls us this is not the message, by the way, God calls us to relationships. That aren't these surfacey, I don't really know you, so therefore you really can't offend me kind of relationships. God calls you to get to know people, even to the point where you've gotten to know that they're not like you and they don't like you. <laughs> and yet you're still called to love them and walk together with them for the glory of God. And that produces 28 years of serving. And so, one of the things I, I want to encourage each of us here as we aim at, what does it even mean to be a part of a church? Uh, That's what it means to be a part of a church, that you serve for generations. I love the fact that in this church, and this has been a common event, that one generation served kids and young people in a generation, and that generation turned around and became their pastor. I mean, I'm I'm a 19-year-old kid who came into the church. I was watching Phil last week, pray for one of my boys who's about the same age. He's a little older than I was when I first came to this church. And, and, you know, having the thought that same man prayed for me when I came forward for prayer times, when I was that age, and he is still here praying for young people today. Listen, that shouldn't be that unusual. That should be what it looks like for godly men to love people in good times and in bad for longevity and walk together for the glory of God. So I applaud that. I'm grateful for the Pharaohs and Steves and Phils and uh, some of these ladies and missionettes have been serving uh, as long as some of these men have been serving. And so thank God for your heart to, to be dedicated to God's people for such a long, wonderful period of time. Grateful for you. All right, well, this morning we are continuing our study. Uh, yes, if uh, the Royal Ranger Missionettes are having lunch today to present some of their awards, and so obviously, if, if your kids are in Royal Rangers and Missionettes, uh, please come and be a part of that lunch today. It'll be a brief award ceremony and some time of fellowship around lunch. If you'd like to find out more about Royal Rangers and Missionettes, please come and join them for lunch today. If your kids are in that age, or you'd like to serve in that capacity, you're welcome. Come join us again. Today and that way you'll get to know the program a bit more as well. Um, do want to thank you guys. Forgot to mention. Thank you for praying for uh, me and the other leader, the regional leaders in Sovereign Grace. We had some meetings this week in Charlotte uh, for most of the week, and I appreciate you praying for us and praying for the larger mission that we're a part of uh, as one local church among many. All right. Well, today. We're we're venturing into 2017 very mindful of being healthy Christians, and so we have wanted to spend some time early in the year here being honest with ourselves and and taking a moment to discover, am I really in a place where I'm healthy, or am I just going to just run into the next year, and I'm going to be the same kind of Christian that I was last year as the same one that I was the year before, and... I don't even know, is this, is this a healthy version of what it means to be a Christian or not? Well, we want to stop and ponder that. You know, let me encourage you in what we're doing here. We're listening to these messages, discussing it in our small groups. Every person is being asked to go online, fill out a spiritual health questionnaire. And then we take those and we set up an appointment with you to sit down with you individually and just talk about what's healthy and what's going on in your life and how can we encourage you in some areas. Maybe give you a prescription, give you some multivitamins to take home with you, to help strengthen your spiritual walk. And let's go into this year being as healthy as we've ever been as we walk with God. But here's something that we discovered last week. We brought up, we visited the people in Amos' time back 760 BC, discovered Their lives were very similar to our lives. We discovered something that I think remains true. It's going to be true for the rest of our lives. Being healthy and being prosperous is a challenging combination. It's been challenging for Americans. We We are the wealthiest most prosperous nation in all the world. But as we looked last week real briefly, we're not exactly even physically the most healthy people in all the world. Spiritually, Europeans and the Western world, America in particular, are not exactly the most healthy spiritual people on the globe. There are much healthier Christians elsewhere, people who have interacted with God at a level that is more life-transforming, more joy satisfying in their lives than what even American Christians are experiencing. So there's something of a strain, of a challenge of this relationship between being healthy physically and spiritually and being prosperous. It was true when we studied Amos last week. They were coming out of one of the most prosperous times in the history of Israel Yet there is no other period in the Bible that awoke more prophets than that period of time did. When you start reading the prophets, the written prophets in the Old Testament, they get birthed out of a season of prosperity and there's one after another is going to come and speak to this nation for a couple of hundred years almost addressing their life and their waywardness and their distractions. So what is it about prosperity and good times that lend itself to not being healthy? We might want to discover that because it looks like for the rest of our lives, we're going to live in a land of prosperity. That looks like it's going to accompany us. So we're not going to dive into being a third world nation anytime soon. We're going to have to figure out, how how am I going to be spiritually healthy and prosperous at the same time? All right, so let me give you a little touch point here on this issue of prosperity. What is prosperity? Well here's a real simple definition. Prosperity is a successful, flourishing or thriving condition. Right. So that's what prosperity is. It is a successful, a flourishing, or a thriving condition. And there's something Everybody needs to get this. There's something uniquely challenging about being successful. I mean, we aim at that. We feel like of all of life, we want to be successful. We want to be flourishing. We want everything we're putting our hands to to go well, to have a positive event take place as we give our lives to something. But be, be warned, when you get that and you are flourishing, you will find a unique set of challenges in that setting. That's different than if you didn't have that success. One of the things that prosperity brings is a life with access to abundant options and pleasures. When you are prosperous, you've got more options than the guy who's not. When you've got some wherewithal, when you've got power, you've got influence over people, you've got money in your bank account, If you didn't have any of those things, your options would go down in life. So prosperity brings options. And when I have options and power, I get to spend it on my pleasures. That's why we have so much luxury in this country. Because we've we've got more in our lives than bare minimum. Which means if I'm going to go out and spend myself on some of these options, they're going to sit in the category of pleasures. Things that I like. Things that I enjoy. I've got options here right? So prosperity brings with it these unique challenges of options and pleasures. And and listen, the path of pleasures is is a tricky path to navigate. You start down that path where you can indulge things that bring pleasure to you. That's a tricky path to walk, right? Remember we said this a couple of weeks ago. We learned that the nature of temptation from James chapter 1, is that we are tempted when we are lured and enticed by our own desires. Listen, if I don't have a desire for something, maybe even have an aversion, that's not my choice. I don't care for that. I don't want to be near that person. I'm not attracted to that. Don't want that. It's really hard to be tempted by those things, isn't it? It's not until in me there is this Craving or desire or value or longing for something, now that thing can tempt me. So prosperity brings with it the opportunity to have more stuff, to have more things, to exercise my choice to have that preference or that pleasure over there. And you know, when we visited last week the people in Amos... They didn't navigate that season very well. Prosperity for them created problems for them. They went wayward, right? And this this is, you know, Jeremiah is one of the prophets who gets awoken during this season of prosperity and wandering of God's people. And this is what he says in Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 7. Listen to what he says to these people. God says, I brought you into a plentiful land to enjoy its fruits and its good things, right? That's prosperity, right? God says, I brought you into a land for that. But when you came in, you defiled my land and made my heritage an abomination. The priests did not say, where where is the Lord? Those who handled the law did not know me. The shepherds transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal and went after things that do not profit. Right, so here's a category of every influential person, every leader in the setting here, once they got into the land of prosperity, they, they lost God. They lost their way. They, they had knowledge of things, but they didn't have intimacy with God. They stopped prophesying in ways that represented God and began to represent the views of of the land, right? It's challenging to do prosperity. Can everybody get that? Verse 9, therefore, God says, I still contend with you, declares the Lord, and with your children's children, I will contend for cross to the coast of Cyprus and see or send to Kedar and examine with care. See if there has been such a thing. Has a nation changed its gods, even though they are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they have hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. And that's an interesting thing. Jeremiah in that moment awakens us to something I think we, we need to be careful to pay attention to. When you live in a prosperous setting, you live in a prosperous times, and You've got these pleasures and these options available to you. Here's the two dangers that await us. You're going to forsake God. That's a danger. The God who claims to be the fountain of living water. The God who says, I am the source of refreshing in your life. I'm the source of life to you. I'm the fount, right? Nobody can live without water. God says, your first temptation is going to be that, to forsake me. And the second is going to be to create alternatives to me. Cisterns. And Jeremiah says, they're broken cisterns, actually. The cistern was a, was a, was a tank, basically. It was a place where water could flow and be held there for, for future use. So obviously... That becomes your source of life, right? And God says, you know what? You guys have you've built these tanks to hold water for yourself for the future, but you don't realize that they're broken cisterns and they can't really hold the water that you need. And yet you're looking to them to provide water to you. Now, where does this kind of stuff come from? How does this happen for us? Well, it happens in a land where there's other options besides God. It happens when you can go find the source of your life somewhere else. You don't need to look for God. You can find something else to occupy yourself this week. Find something that you're interested in. Find a hobby that you've always liked. Find a talent that's in your life. Find areas where you've been complimented because you're, you're attractive or you're smart. or You've got power and influence. You've got a, a persuasive personality. Go find that stuff to be your source for life. And listen, that's what we're tempted to do in our land of prosperity. Go carve out cisterns in those kinds of categories and look to them to be our source and provide for us. That's the unique challenge of a flourishing setting like prosperity. Pleasures sit outside of God and they tempt us. All right, so be careful. Now, what do you do with that? Because I'm about to shift gears, and if some of you have paid attention to the things that I normally say, you're going you're gonna to scratch your head a bit for the next 45 minutes here. So what seemed to be, this is a no-brainer, right? If pleasures create opportunities for waywardness and drifting from God and developing affections for the world, then, hello, no-brainer, then let's just cut back on the pleasures, Let's eliminate pleasures, or maybe if we don't eliminate them completely, why don't we just shrink them down to very, very small elements so that our life is just simpler. It's a stripped-down version with very little pleasure in it because we want to guard ourselves from going astray. Okay, well, you may be familiar. If you're a bit of a philosophy person, you'll be familiar. If you're a church history person, you're familiar with these words, words like asceticism. Pietism, monasticism. When you visit church history, you find out this is what the church did when it recognized, you know, if we got too much going on in our life, we tend to go astray. So how about if we just cut back? And so you get to the 17th century, you get pietism gets put in place. It's this invitation for a very structured, limited, disciplined life keep some of those things at bay but you can go all the way back to the fourth century and monasticism right the creating of monasteries and monks who lived in the desert by themselves had a view of spirituality that to be spiritual to be healthy spiritually one needs to strip their lives down to bear nothing otherwise if you got too much stuff in your life no question you're going to go astray so let's just divorce our lives from stuff the interesting insight here from Justo Gonzalez, who writes the book, The Story of Christianity. It's a great historic presentation of Christianity. And he writes this in the fourth century, and, and some prosperous times have finally showed up for Christians in the fourth century. Right? Up until the first few hundred years of the Christian church, persecution was the feature of being a Christian. If you were a Christian in the first few hundred years, you were going to be persecuted ostracized jobs would be hard success would be hard not impossible but it would be challenging and then the emperor the roman emperor constantine has this encounter with a cross an image on this bridge right before he goes into battle and he claims to have been converted to christianity and he turns the roman empire and says hey we got to stop persecuting these christians matter of fact. Christianity needs to be the national religion and it needs to be promoted and it needs to be okay. And so once he created this setting where Christianity could be accepted, matter of fact, you could even gain something by becoming a Christian now. There were some good things about being a Christian. Well, it quickly went from persecuted to prosperous in some ways, peaceful, a setting that was inviting and not threatening like it once was. And that began to have an effect on people's spirituality. Prosperity does what prosperity does. It began to pull people down spiritually. So here's how they responded to this. Listen to this thought. It's kind of a long quote, but stay with me. How was one to be a true Christian in such circumstances? When the church joins the powers of the world, when luxury and ostentation take hold of Christian altars... When the whole of society is intent on turning the narrow path into a wide avenue, how is one to resist the enormous temptations of the times? Many found an answer in the monastic life, to flee human society, to leave everything behind, to dominate the body and its passions, which give way to temptation. The very word monk derives from the Greek monikos, which means solitary, solitary. One of the driving motivations for the early monks was the search for solitude. Society, with its noise and its many activities, was seen as a temptation and a distraction from the monastic goal. Their life was extremely simple. Some planted gardens, but most of them earned their living weaving baskets and mats that they then traded for bread and oil. The diet of the desert consisted mostly of bread, to which were occasionally added fruit, vegetables, and oil. Their belongings were limited to the strictly necessary clothing and a mat to sleep on. Even before Constantine's time, there had been Christians who, for various reasons, had felt called to an unusual style of life. Women who chose not to marry and to devote all their time and energies to the work of the church. Sometime later, Origen, following the Platonic, right, this is Plato's thinking, ideal of the wise life, made arrangements to live at a mere subsistence level and led a life of extreme asceticism. Also, although Gnosticism had been rejected by the church, its influence would still be felt in the widely held notion that there was a fundamental opposition between the body, and the life of the spirit. And that therefore, in order to live fully in the spirit, it was necessary to subdue and to punish the body. Now, I know there's a lot in there and I don't want to take time to to develop all those thoughts, but common in the New Testament and in church history, and maybe in some ways today and still present in the world, is this idea that With the knowledge that there is a spiritual dimension to our lives and a physical dimension to our lives. And then we're left with how do we treat these two dimensions? Well, Gnosticism, which borrowed some ideas from Plato long before, created this aversion to anything physical. Anything physical Gnosticism taught was inherently evil. So the physical dimension of your life was inherently evil. So if you, if you let that physical dimension get around any kind of pleasures, it was going to obviously indulge and destroy you. And so it was evil. It was corrupt. And so it drew a line. So all your energies, all your devotion, all your activity was to be into the spiritual realm. And you were hostile to the physical realm. So Plato developed this idea. Gnosticism furthered this idea. Eastern ideas are filled with this idea. When you get around Buddhism, Buddhism is transcendental. It's trying to transcend the physical dimension of one's life. It's trying to separate oneself from being physically connected to the world that you live in. So these these ideas are all around us. Are are these God's ideas? Is this, this how God wants spirituality and healthy spirituality to be done? Well, I'm, I'm going I'm to take you, I'm hopefully going to sprint through this, but I'm going to give you a, a sense of what the Bible has to say about how God created us. I'm going to make this point today, if you don't remember anything else. God wired us for pleasure. The being that you are And I want to make this point today. The being that you are is both physical and spiritual. It is both. That being is wired for pleasure. And for you to adopt an attempt at being healthy by eliminating or stripping down pleasure to its bare minimum, you're going to be trying to do Christianity with an idea that's foreign to God's original design for you. You're going to need something different. So we we'll are gonna cover some of this this week uh, and then a little bit more next week. So turn to Amos with me. Let's, let's go back to where we were last week just for a moment. Remember, Amos is one of the first prophets, perhaps probably the first writing prophet on the scene for a prosperous people who think they're healthy, think they've got it together. They got money in their bank accounts, success against their enemies. Their cities are in good shape. Things are going good for them. But spiritually they're not healthy. And Amos shows up to announce that. And after eight chapters of describing their lack of health and pronouncing God's judgment upon them, we come to chapter nine. And this is how God ends his proclamation to them. This is the last thing he's going to say to them. Verse 11, in this prophecy of correction, God says, in that day, I will raise up the booth of David that is fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name declares the Lord who does this. Behold, the days are coming declares the Lord when the plowman, shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. In other words, you're going to be so fruitful that these seasons of planting and reaping, they're going to stumble on top of one another. They're going to have these long delays and breaks. You're just going to go from fruitfulness to planting, the fruitfulness to planting, right? That's what's waiting you. The mountains, verse 13, the mountains shall drip sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people, Israel. And they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine. And they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land, and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. Wait a minute. This is the stuff that messes them up. Are you going to give it all back to them? Isn't this why they go astray? They get all this stuff and then they leave God. Forget about God. Go find other sources. Marry themselves to these broken cisterns that really can't provide life, but they're stupid. They go after them anyway. And God says, oh, no, I'm going to give all that stuff back to you. You do see that here, right? And now you're going to see it all over the Bible. Remember this line from Jeremiah chapter 2? Remember Amos is 760. Jeremiah is closer to about 600. So this is 160 years later when God through Jeremiah says, I brought you into a plentiful land to enjoy its fruits and its good things. What were they doing in this land with all this stuff to eat, all these cities to enjoy? What were they doing there? Were they rebelling against God? Had God said, hey, 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 you want to be godly? Right here in the desert. See where you can't see any color? Everything's brown? Right here. This is the rest of your life right here because I want you devoted to me. I want every ounce of affection that you have, and I don't want, I don't want you to be distracted from me for a second. So I'll, I know that looks like a green cactus way off in the distance. It's not. You park it right here. And then they said, no, no, we're going to go in this other land. This land has got a lot of stuff in it. It's got great things to eat. There's lots of color and texture, and we can do business there. It's much better. Are they in the promised land by rebelling against God? No, God says, I brought you into a plentiful land to enjoy, to enjoy. There's a strange disconnect between enjoying life and knowing God. See, it's still in us, right? I mean, don't you have this little bit of sense of false guilt almost in you? That if you enjoy something besides reading your Bible, you know, probably something sinful in this. I just know it. I just know I'm going to read a passage or go to church and Keith's going to preach something and I knew this was wrong. Shoot. We're just waiting for the other foot to drop, right? If there's anything we actually enjoy doing, there must be something wrong with that. But this is God's idea. I'm bringing you into a plentiful land to enjoy its fruits and its good things. And right. this is not the first time we have bumped into this idea about this promised land, this place of everyday enjoyment, right? Because that's what's going to get featured here. There's all kinds of stuff that God says, I just want you to enjoy this on an everyday basis. That's my plan for you. That needs to be a reminder for us, right? Let's run through these verses in Deuteronomy. Remember what Deuteronomy is? Deuteronomy is the dress rehearsal, the remembrance of why we're going into the promised land. So God has rescued them out of Egypt. They've wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. Now they're standing just on the other side of the Jordan River. And they've gathered for a rehearsal of, hey, why are we going into the land again? And God, Deuteronomy, gives them the law again and states his purpose for why he's going in. Listen to what he says here. Capture, if you will, God's plan for everyday pleasures. Don't miss them. Chapter 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Right? Stop right there. That is the control verse for our existence. If there's something that states why do you exist, you exist to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You don't just exist to be a religious person who does a little bit better job than average on being moral. And maybe you come to church and you read God's book. You know, the the club rules are right here and you're kind of devoted to these club rules. But, But you're a person who lacks affection for God. I mean, we do that singing thing in here every week, you know, and you put up with that. You know, but you really want to get to the explanation of the do's and don'ts. Tell me how to do this thing. Inspire me a little bit so that I can go out and be more successful in this world. But spilling over affection? Do you ever come and hear a cry? You sing to God? Do you ever come and you hear words that you can't sing them loud enough because they mean so much to you in your heart? Do you have affection for God? See, this Bible calls us, you shall love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And this is interesting, right? In this context, verse 10, and when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to give you with great and Good cities that you did not build. Great and good cities. What do, you, what do you do with those words? Let me just warn you, that word good, it's the same Hebrew word that God used when he described his creation in Genesis chapter one. Remember, God made this and it was good. God made this and it was good. And God made this and it was good. And he turns around and said, there's gonna be some good cities in this land cities you didn't build, houses full of all good things that you did not fill, same word, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery." When you eat and are full, that's, that's prosperity. That's not just getting by. That's not I'm barely scraped together a meal finally. I'm going I'm to exist for another couple of days. You're eating to the full. And there's pleasure in that. He goes on a little bit later. Deuteronomy 8 verse 7. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land. A land of brooks of water, fountains and springs, flowing out in the valleys and hills. A land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates. A land of olive trees and honey. Sounds like a pretty tasty place, doesn't it? This sounds like a, like a restaurant brochure or something, doesn't it? It's almost like God showing you the menu. Look what you're going to get to eat. I mean, how have you read that verse in the past? Do you read it like God presenting a, a brochure to you, saying, "Did you wait to get here or what? This is going to be awesome. Look at what you're gonna. This is going to be sweet and tasty and savory." Verse nine: A land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing. That's prosperity. Don't lack anything here. God has provided you a place to live where you are full and enjoying things. A land. Whose stones are iron, and out of whose hills you can dig copper. And I don't know maybe you read past this a little bit too fast. Did, but did you ever know from the Bible that God's into mining? I, I know that, I know, you know, don't get me wrong here. If you're a tree hugger or you know something like that, you're thinking well, the Bible is so against, you know, oil exploration and mining operations. You know, really? you sure? Because God told them, tucked inside these hills and these mountains, there's steel and ore, copper. And if you dig in there, because I'm pretty sure God was not describing an earth where they, they, you know, they drove up and there was this pure copper in little piles or maybe in plastic containers, you know, just available to them to take as they needed it. I think the copper was hidden in the ground. And if you wanted it, you're going to have to dig it out, and if you dug it out, you might make a mess. And if you made a mess, you might have to do something with the mess that you made, right? Welcome to environmentalism. Apparently, God's got some industry in mind. When you go into the land, I want you to be industrious. I want you to invent things that can dig holes in the ground and get copper out of it. Listen, I know this, this kind of butts up against some things, doesn't it? I thought we were going into the promised land just to, I don't know, have like a really, really, really long worship service. You know, we just sing a lot and read from the Bible and pray and then sing some more. You do recognize this is God telling them to do this. Verse 10, and you shall eat and be full and you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. Can you put a little earmark right there in that verse? We're going to come back to that verse next week and talk about that a little bit further. But God's plan was that you would eat and you would be full and you would bless the Lord. Remember, this is all in the context of you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Well, how the heck am I going to do that when I'm digging for copper? I'm not exactly sure, but apparently you can. Verse 11, take care of. The Lord, your God. Apparently, prosperity is the other side of the coin of forgetting. But God still gives out this coin without doing away with what we think would keep us from forgetting. In Deuteronomy 8, verse 17, beware Lest you say in your heart, you guys hear hear enough warning in this passage? Everybody hearing warning in these passages? Beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God. For it's he who gives you power to get wealth. I know I run a risk here because some of you maybe come from churches where prosperity was taught and it was taught a lot and, and you may even have a sense of allegiance to it and how it was taught. So give me a chance here just to step on your toes and, and, and not blow me off. Whenever I have heard prosperity people handle that, they present it to you with the idea that, hey, did you know that God has given you the power to get wealth? So get your butt out there and get you some. That's how It's presented. What are you doing? Get out there and get wealthy. God's given you the power to get wealth. Get out there and get your wealth. All right, now having read this more carefully, do you understand that's not the context of what's being said? The context is God is about to do something to bring you into a land, and you're going to find yourself very wealthy and blessed by him. When that happens, be careful that you remind yourself that it's God who gave you the power to get that wealth that's how you should preach prosperity. Not hand prosperity to somebody who barely knows whether Jesus is more valuable than a diamond ring and say, God has giving you the power to get diamond rings. Oh, diamond rings, I like that. I'm all over that. How do you spell Jesus? Well, we'll worry about that later. I just want to know how do I get the diamonds, man? Where's that copper at? You said there's copper here? Where, where do I find the copper? Wait, 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 wait. You're in this land to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Oh, and by the way, there's copper in the land, and God, he may help you dig it out of the ground in some amazing ways, and you may become very, very wealthy as a result, but just remember when you do get that wealth that it's God who gave you the power to have those things. Don't forget him. I would love to hear prosperity teachers, every time they teach prosperity, warn people, that when you get prosperity in one hand, you are in danger of forgetting God with the other. But that's not an outlaw for good things and pleasures. Be very careful because the tone of the Bible, Deuteronomy 7, is not God saying, hey, look, man, on the other side over there, it's incredible. But I, I say we just stay over here where there's not all that good stuff and feasting and all that because that just goes bad and you're going to... I'm telling you right now, you're going to probably forget about me when you go on the land. So why don't we stay over here as a remedy to you not forgetting? Do you understand that never becomes God's plan? Now that sounds like monasticism. That sounds like an approach to healthy spirituality. It's just not God's approach, right? All right, back up further to Genesis chapter 2. And let's see what God had originally in mind in this category as well. Genesis chapter 2. And and please take note of this, the garden doesn't feel very ascetic, right? Asceticism strips down life to the most simplest of categories. It, It tries to do away with pleasures and make things extremely simple. This does not sound like the desert fathers writing from the desert about their spirituality, And this is God's creation that he is going to both create man and design him and create the setting and put them together. So this is where you discover we are wired for pleasure. Genesis 2 verse 5. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land and... There was no man to work the ground. Apparently, God had intended for man to turn his attention to work. Man was supposed to work. He's going to tend the ground here. Later, he's going to be digging copper out of, the, out of a mountain. Man's supposed to do that. And any of you who do work, There's there's something satisfying, there's something pleasurable about developing a plan for work and seeing it come to pass and being successful at it, gaining influence, gaining power. At the end of the day, you built something, you accomplished something, you set some things in place. Those are all pleasures. How many know people become workaholics because they love how that makes them feel? Were they not supposed to feel that way? Is the feeling wrong? Because it sounds like God intended for man, right? you got some stuff that's not growing right now. God said part of the reason because there's no man working it. So that means when man puts his hands to working this thing, all of a sudden it's like magic's going to happen. Crops are going to grow and he's going to see accomplishment. He's going to feel like, I did that. I was a part of doing that. Look at that. Right? How I many of you have been a part of maybe building a business? You started out with a business that was about to fail, and you poured yourself into it, and you worked hard, and that thing became something, and now it employs all kinds of people. It's a multi-million dollar company. How are you supposed to feel about that? Is that is that unspiritual? It feels like it can be, because I know most of the time we're standing up here talking about reading the Bible and worshiping God and praying. And so you can develop this. Approach to life that, well, that's the stuff that's spiritual. And other stuff, you know, it's kind of like, well, it's necessary, but I don't don't know how spiritual that is. Can you find your work in the Bible here? Originally in God's plan? Well, interestingly, yes, you can. Verse 6. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. Don't read past that too fast because that verse right there stomps on Plato, undoes Gnosticism. Be very careful what you just read. God formed man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into him the breath of life. So, man is dust and breath. The Bible does not say this. God picked up some dust and built a Toyota Camry and breathed man into the Toyota Camry. It doesn't say God formed a shell and put man inside the shell. Does it say that? No, but see, Plato made that very popular, and it got picked up by Gnosticism and and, and into Christianity. This idea that we're not really that. We're spiritual, and we're not that. Uh, No. I'm reading the Bible here. God formed man, not a house for man, not a shell for man, not a car for man. God formed man out of the dust and breathed his life into him. And what's interesting here is there is, this is why this is so important to get. In this part of man, there's all kinds of pleasures. When God formed man, he, he gave him eyeballs that see things. And he gave him taste buds. That taste things. And he gave him hormones. And he gave him emotions. And he gave him affections. He gave him ears to hear everything from the different bird sounds to the, the wind blowing through the trees. To music. Right? This is pleasures live in the dust part, don't they? And they live in the other part as well. But if you're not careful, you're going to develop a theology that says the pleasures from the dust part of me are evil and are wrong, and I need to stay away from them. And that's going to become a massive problem because you live in a world that seems to be wired for you to enjoy it. It constantly wants to reach out and touch that stuff in you. I mean, color You get that God made the world colorful, and then he created eyes for us to see the color. Now, if God wanted me not to stare at anything, God, just make it black and white. Or make me like a worm with no eyes. I just kind of inch around through life, you know. (laughs) Feeling my way around. I can't see. I don't know what you're wearing. I don't know whether you've got blue or red on. and. You know, I can't look out at the ocean and stare at it for hours because I can't see. God didn't want me to be distracted by those things, so he gave me no eyes. That's not true, is it? God gave you eyes. And then he made the world something to look at. So that you'd go, wow, look at that. Look at that. And then he gave you taste buds. I've used this example before, but everybody gets this, that the God who created everything, he could have just stuck like a port in the side of your neck, and like a gas station. You just pull up. You got got no taste buds. You don't taste anything. You just kind of plug in and pour some goop in, and it goes in, and whew, I feel invigorated. I got fresh strength. No, he said, you know, I want you to smell it before you eat it. Then I want you to taste it every bite. Where do you think that came from? The fall? Is that from the devil? Right, this is from God, isn't it? This is God's purpose in his creation. Verse 8. The Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant. Hold that word. Firmly in your minds. Pleasant to the sight and good for food. So into this garden comes all this variety of plants and fruits and color that is pleasant. Now that word pleasant is a really loaded word. And it is the word God is using to describe how we would feel about what he created in the garden for us. It's the word hamet. It means to listen to desire, to covet, to take pleasure in, to desire passionately. It's the same word God is going to use when he says, Thou shalt not covet your neighbor's wife. It's the same word. In this moment, though, these things that God made were desirable. So you were in the garden, right? I don't know what your scenery looks like in the garden. What, what's Adam and Eve looking like in the garden? Are just waiting for the worship team to kick the song back up again? You know, waiting, hey, can, can we just read a Bible verse and let's just, let's just stare at God. Do not look to the right or the left. Do not notice the bushes or the things hanging on the trees. Ignore that. Is that, is that your image of the garden? Or is your image of the garden, they walk over one hill after the other, staring out at what God had made that was pleasant, it was desirable, it captured their attention, and they went, oh, my God. That's a curse word, isn't it? Can you say, oh, my God? Don't you tell your kids to say, oh, my gosh? I'm going to do a study on this. I'm going to come back to you next week, and I'm going to tell you where the origins of, oh, my God is. But if I had my thought, the origins of, oh, my God, are right here in the garden. It's humanity looking out at God's creation, knowing that God did that for his purposes and saying, oh my God, I know you've seen this, but oh my God, you made all this. And then they pick some mysterious fruit off of some tree and they bite into it. And the juice runs down their face and they never tasted anything so sweet. And they look at each other and they go, Oh, my God. One bite after another is just an oh, my God, after an oh, my God, after an oh, my God. I think that's a more accurate picture of what the garden was like. It was full of delights and pleasures. So far, this ain't sounding like a monastery in the desert where you just, you just eat bread and bare minimum of that. Stay away from eating too much of the bread. And then it gets even more interesting. Verse 10, a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah where there's gold. Oh, really? Gold. And the gold of that land was good. Oh, my. (laughs) Delium and onyx stone are there. Oh, we're back into mining again. (laughs) All right, can you imagine that at some point the descendants of Adam who were nerdy engineers are going, I can't wait because I don't think the gold, again, the gold wasn't like in little nuggets just sitting on the ground for them. I think they're going to have to find the gold. And some wired by God, nerdy engineer who takes pleasure in overanalyzing how to build stuff was going to figure out how to get that gold and those precious gems out of that mountain over there. And they were supposed to do that, and they were supposed to enjoy doing that in this garden. That sounds like pleasures all over the place, right? And, and he, there's more here, verse eighteen. Then the Lord God said, "It's not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit." for him all right now now you just got exposed to the fact that God designs things to fit together all right so the fact that the world has color and texture is designed for the eyes that can see it so God did that he wired us to enjoy the things around us now how many of you know when God said I'm going to give a woman to the man and I'm going to fit that woman just right for this man God had all kinds of pleasure in mind, in that relationship. The first pleasure, the reason why God said it's not good, it's not good that man should be alone, was the pleasure of companionship, of friendship, of human-level relationship. God said, that's a good thing. I want you to enjoy that. I want that for you. All right, Everybody just track with me, because next week I'll, I'll, I'll deal with this a little bit more. But you understand the problem is not in the goodness of what God gave us. It's when sin corrupts it. Because all of us are sitting here right now going, hey, no, if there's one category that seems to be bad, it's the relationship category. (laughs) No matter what relationship you have, they're painful, they disappoint, people do the wrong thing, they're hurtful. Well, the reason why they're so hard is because we were meant to enjoy them. And sin corrupted that. But you can't miss this. We were supposed to enjoy relationships with others. Right? God fit them together. Right? Without being too graphic, the anatomy of a man and the anatomy of a woman is fit together for sexual pleasure. You're supposed to enjoy sex. It's a gift from God. He could have made us amoebas who divide. He did not. He made us to come together in a particular way and experience the pleasure of sexual connection with each other. That's a gift. That's so polluted today in the world that we live in. That it makes us as Christians not even be able to enjoy the gift dimension that it is to us. And that needs to get fixed in our minds. The pleasure of family and procreation, right? At some point, a little baby's gonna come in with all the little ways in which we enjoy this new little life and we kiss its little face and we hold it and we rock it until it goes to sleep. We put it in bed and we stare at it for hours. All that was, God gave us all that. And then they grow and they, they grow up and they have different dimensions in their lives that we get to participate in that. This, this is pleasure from God. And then God turns to the man and the woman and he says, listen, I've given you the whole world. Subdue it, which is an interesting word. We won't get into that. Subdue it and manage it. And so here, husband and wife are going to go out into this adventure of managing and subduing the world. All these things are a sense of pleasure and enjoyment. We're supposed to enjoy these things. Somehow the problem can come in is we pick up Plato's ideas and Gnosticism's ideas and monastic thinking, and we, d- we build this division between physical pleasures, temporal pleasures, things in this world pleasures, and spirituality. And so to be healthy, what, is, what does that mean? I want to guard us. I don't want us to think to be healthy means no to that, no to that, no to that, no to that. No to that, that tastes good, feels good. You know, it's doing something for me. No, no, must be bad, must be bad. And that's in us. And sometimes all we can hear that's good is, is Bible reading, prayer time, and worship services. And everything else, uh, that's the stuff we need to do, but it's really not good stuff. And just glancing through these things, obviously, this is God's plan and his idea. Let me give you a couple of thoughts here from an author that I will recommend his book next week to you. Joe Rigney, in his book, The Things of Earth, says, This book was written to answer a simple question. What are we to do with the things of earth? Embrace them? Reject them? Use them? Forget about them? Set our affections on them? Look at them with suspicious eyes? Enjoy them with a twinge or two of guilt? Why did God make this world? Why did he make a world for his own glory in Christ and then fill it to the brim with pleasures? Physical pleasures, sensible pleasures, emotional pleasures, and relational pleasures. Why did God make a world full of good friends, sizzling bacon, the laughter of children, West Texas sunsets, Dr. Pepper college football, marital love, and the warmth of wool socks? He goes on, he says, my aim is simple. <clears throat> I want to work with you for your joy, your joy in your family, your joy in your friends, your joy in your pancakes and eggs, your steak and potatoes, your chips and your salsa, your joy in your ca- camping trips, workouts, and iPod playlist, your joy in the Bible and worship services and in the quiet moments before you fall asleep, your joy in your job, your hobbies, and your daily routine. And in and through all these things, I want to work with you for your joy in the living and personal God who gave you all these things and delivered you from sin and death through the work of his son and Holy Spirit. That you might enjoy him and them and him in them forever. and if we're looking at the Bible correctly here and I think we are I have to do something with the fact I am wired for pleasure God did that and he made the world accessible to those pleasures God did that I'm going to need to learn how to live life so that I don't forget him while I enjoy these things. Because the same God who says, you will love me with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, brings him into a land where there's lots of stuff to fall in love with. The same God did that. Apparently, it's not his plan that you and I strip our lives down to nothing, live on the backside of a desert, and then we'd be really, really, really spiritual. So, Rigdon goes on and he says, If we extend this divine endorsement of sight and taste, then here we see God enthusiastically endorsing our joy and delight in all sensible pleasures. That is, pleasures we receive through our bodily senses, pleasures that we see, smell, taste, touch, and hear, provided they are enjoyed within the boundaries established by the giver of every good gift. And we'll discover that next week. Perhaps God. Could have done it another way. He might have made an immaterial world populated by purely spiritual beings. Infinite wisdom preferred stomachs and tongues and every combination of sour, sweet, bitter, salty, and savory that the chefs on the food network can discover. <laughs> because that's what they are doing, discovering all the ways that God chose to communicate his goodness, his sweetness, even his bitterness to human palates, my guess is that it'll take a while. The creation of food, tongues, and the human digestive system is the product of infinite wisdom knitting the world together in a harmonious whole. This is God's creation. He made it this way for a purpose. All right, one more thought here because I want to fully convince you. You have a last passage there is from Revelation. So I want us to see that from creation all the way to new creation. What God is after involves our pleasure. So we will never escape the pleasures that God has for us. Revelation 21 verse 1 says then. All right. So here we are. We're at the very end now. Right. We've come all with the end of God's created beings. He says, then I saw A new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Why is it that when you read that, you get that, right? There's coming a day when I don't know where we are, floating, standing, I don't know what we're doing. But out of some other location comes lower down the new Jerusalem, the city of God. And we're going to look on it. And you know how you're going to respond? I can tell you exactly how you're going to respond. You're going to respond, husbands. You're going to respond the same way that when you stood in a church building at an altar and the back doors opened up and your bride adorned with with a gown that she will wear one time to present herself to you for the rest of your life and that door opened up and tears flooded your eyes as you looked upon this woman who's going to give her life to me forever. That's how you're going to feel when God lowers the city that he made for us forever to dwell in in front of us. Why is it that you know anything about how to respond in that moment? Because God made that bride walking through the back door pleasurable for you. She wasn't like the day the dump truck pulled up with a fresh load of sand for you to spread all over your yard. (laughs) Remember that day? Doesn't feel the same. Because there's pleasure in the fact that I have a relationship with this one that's like no one else. And I'm connected to her for the rest of my life like no one else. And there's beauty in your heart toward her like no one else. Why do you know anything about that? Because your time here on earth taught you that. To prepare you to see that which was glorious that was coming. Verse 3, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. And Verse 5, and he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. Then in verse 10, and he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and at the gates were 12 angels and on the gates the names of the 12 tribes and the sons of Israel were inscribed. Listen, where did the guy get a context for these jewels? Out of digging them out of the ground and staring at them and going, Oh, oh my God, did you see what I found inside that mountain? These jewels are unbelievable. Why are they going, look at the 12 gates on that city? Have you ever seen gates like that? They are freaking out over the gates. Now, see, all you architect, engineer nerds, there's going to be stuff for you to enjoy there. <laughs> you're going, Can you imagine? Oh, my God, how'd they draw that angle? How are they supporting that structure right there? Right? There's going to, you're going to enjoy that. You know, those of you just waiting for the, you know, the angels to sing, you have no idea what's holding the wall up and don't care, there'll be other stuff for you to enjoy. But you're going to enjoy this. Why? Because those good cities that you got to dwell in that were built taught you there's something good about building something with the ingenuity, the abilities and talents God gives for his glory. Verse 19. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper. The second, sapphire. Agate, emerald, onyx, carnelian, right? We've been digging the mountains a lot for this list. Verse 21, and the 12 gates were 12 pearls. Each of the gates made of a single pearl. The street of the city was pure gold, transparent as glass. Verse 24, the kings of the earth will bring their glory into this city. And its gates will never be shut by day. And there will be no night there. They will bring into the glory and the honor of the nations. Where, Where is this stuff coming from? The glory of kings? The honor of nations? Wait, wait, does that mean God's into politics somehow? Maybe so, huh? Maybe there's activity in governmental structures on the earth that are so pleasing and glorifying to God that they get to be presented as an offering to God in the holy city. Where'd they come from? People who gave their lives to governments. People who worked in fields of government. I know it's hard to imagine that God could at any way be okay with government. I know that's hard. And look in verse, chapter 22, verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, brightest crystal flowing from the throne of God of the Lamb through the middle of the streets of the city also on either side of the river the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month still going to be <laughs> dripping and going oh my god this is even better than the last one and then next month there's going to be a different fruit on this tree and we're going to take another bite of it and we're going to turn to God and we're going to go oh my god this is unbelievable The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed. Now listen to this. But the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him. Do you get this picture here? This is what we need to figure out. Even in the new city, there's all kinds of stuff going on. And in the midst of that, God is seated on his throne being worshipped. But apparently we have glorified bodies that still see these trees that are lining the streets. We're still taking of this water that refreshes. We still live in an existence that God created that isn't just miles and miles of something from Star Wars, a space as far as you can see with a throne floating by itself. And all of us simply staring at the throne, doing nothing but staring at the throne. Apparently in heaven, you're going to notice that the, the fruit just changed in this new month. And you get to eat it. And you get to enjoy it. Because God put it there. And he wired you to be able to enjoy that. And he is in the midst of it being worshiped. God is somehow in the midst of these things being worshipped. So this is not carnality versus spirituality. Here, go ahead and come up. I'm running out of time here. All right. I know that was a lot of information, but can I just say this? For some of us, it is a drastic paradigm shift. Because we're a whole lot more of Plato's disciples and Gnostics than we want to admit sometimes. So here we are going to try to figure out how to be healthy in 2017 with this drastic dichotomy between being spiritual and living in a natural world. And yet God created them both and we're going to have to figure out how to do this thing and warning and not forget God. But the answer is not to go live in a desert and not have anything in your life. And never take another bite of anything that you're going to enjoy. And never look on anything that's pleasant. That's not the answer. It wasn't the answer in, the, in Eden. It wasn't the answer in the promised land. It will not be the answer in eternity. Something's the answer. We need to learn what that is. All right, so I know I just, I just taught a lot this morning. The next week we'll sort through this a little bit better. And we'll look at, okay, how do we do some of that here? Because we want to be healthy. Having been wired for pleasure, we want to be healthy now. Amen? Let's stand up together. Listen, I just wanted us, I want us to see the Bible clearly in this category. So this is not an application moment. This is just a moment for us to turn to God. And Eric's going to help us with some words to say, oh my God, over and over again, oh my God. That's a good thing to say. Amen.
1: Praise to the Lord, the Almighty, the King of creation. Oh, my soul, praise Him, for He is Thy health and salvation. Just Gently sustain it. Hast thou not seen how thy desires there have been? Granted in what he ordained. Hallelujah. thy work and defend thee. Surely his goodness and mercy here daily attend thee. Ponder anew. Ponder anew what the almighty can do if with his love he befriend thee. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Hallelujah, 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 Praise to the Lord, Oh, let all that is in me Let's, let's live, we're just saying, let's live this week aware of God's goodness, aware of his beauty, aware of all the pleasures that he has given us to enjoy. And let's let the sound of amen come from his people. Amen. You guys have a great week. And if you're staying for the lunch, don't forget Roll Rangers and Missionette's lunch upstairs right now. See you guys next week.